Welcome to the Career Happiness Podcast. My name is Soma Ghosh. I am the founder of a business called the Career Happiness Mentor. And within this podcast, we explore themes around career happiness, confidence, well-being, and so much more. Not only do I do one-to-one personalized episodes to really, really support you as a listener, but you will have the chance to listen to really, really amazing guests from all corners of not just world, but different industries. It's really, really important that you are not only happy in your career, but you make time to progress in a way that feels right for you. So if you want to have more energy in your career, change your career, find out more about how to potentially start a business or even help your teenager with careers advice, this is the podcast for you. Thanks so much. Hello, everybody. And I know I've been on a bit of a hiatus from the podcast, but I'm here today, here in April, with a new interview for you. The guest that I spoke to back in March is somebody I felt so honoured to speak to. Her name's Deepa Purushottam. And we had a really deep and meaningful conversation about what it's like to be a woman of colour in the workplace. Deepa has written a book called The First, The Few and The Only, which she talks a little bit more about in this interview. It's about redefining and kind of empowering us as women of colour to really show up and do the work that we want to. So it links in quite well, the Career Happiness podcast. But also what was really, really interesting about this conversation is we were able to talk about things that regularly come up with my clients who are people of colour. Things like being gaslighted at work, being bullied, being ignored, feeling invisible, all of these things. And I really came away feeling very inspired by this conversation. But not just that, there are a lot more people like Deepa who are doing the work she's doing. And one of the reasons I started my business and this podcast was to really, really help not just women of colour, I work with all types of women, but women to feel as though their voices are being heard. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So hello, everybody. I'm really, really excited to have a wonderful guest, stateside guest here today. Hi, Deepa. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's honestly a pleasure and I'm so excited to have you here. One of the things that I really, really am so excited about is that I wish I'd had someone like you Mm -hmm. five, six years ago when I was in the workplace going through bullying and just kind of feeling quite traumatised because I was in a situation where I was really good at my job deeper but I was being undermined every day. And I'm sure (laughs) you can. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. And honestly, when I saw um, what you were doing, I felt hope. I felt so Mm. much hope and so much excitement because I feel we need more people like you. 
to be doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, first of all, for saying that. So thank you. Yes. And I just want to jump right in and just let you know, I think that's how many of us feel. I think a lot of people that I interviewed, I interviewed over 500 women of color in writing the book. I think we all think it's us, right? And part of why I wanted to write it just, just to say from the outset was so that we don't feel like it's us, right? We don't we don't carry that. I, th- I think there's a lot of um, healing that can be done if we realize it's not us. So thank you for sharing that. No, no, I don't know why. When I was when I was saying it, I was feeling quite emotional. That probably mm-hmm. sounds a bit cheesy or silly. No, it doesn't. I I think so many women of color are traumatized by the workplace, right? And we have never been taught to talk about it. There's no space mm-hmm. to talk about it. And I, you know, I'm realizing I think there's also not reward for talking about it, right? It's almost like something happens to you and it's it's interesting and I, I maybe I will unpack this because it keeps coming up in different ways. I feel like we feel shame when something happens to us, which I don't understand where that comes from or why. Like we didn't do it. Why do we feel shameful? Yeah, I know. I know deeper. But honestly, I feel very humbled to be having this very important conversation with you here today. I obviously know a little bit about what you do. But it would be really, really interesting for you to kind of share a little bit more about your own career journey. What led you to kind of support women of colour specifically and a little bit about N-Formation, the organisation that you co-founded with, with, with Ra Goddess. It'd be great to know. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I spent over 21 years in the corporate space. I was a partner, a senior partner at Deloitte. I was there for all my career. Um, I had a a brief career in politics prior to that because that's actually what I went to grad school for. But that is uh, where I spent most of my career. And towards the last three years of my career, I started having growing questions around purpose, around impact, again, because that wasn't what I thought I'd be doing for my life, even though I had a wonderful career. Um, Just these growing questions around purpose. And I also had started to get really sick and the symptoms had started mounting. And so it was a combination of, um, you know, the stress, I think, in, in getting sick in combination with these questions around purpose that really led me to ask some different questions. I was the first Indian female partner we made um, in consulting in the, in the U.S. And so there was a lot of eyes on me. I, again, made partner really early. And so that's part of why I think the title, The First, The Few, The Only, really speaks to me. Sometimes when you're the first in these spaces, there's a lot of expectation on you. And so as I was in my you know three-year conundrum of leaving or not leaving, I felt a real pressure to, to stay. I think part of because of how I was raised, you know, my parents were immigrants from India to the U.S., but also because I felt like I was the first and I felt like if I left, there would be some sort of conversation around my own failures, but also for other women of color, right, coming up after me. And so in an attempt to figure out what to do, I started gathering women of color. It started as one-on-one dinners, eventually turned into um, a series of dinners I did with Raw across the country. We did about 12, 20 to 30 women each. These were senior leaders in corporate. I was really listening for where does one go after 20 years in one place and what's a women of color friendly, you know, genre or industry if I wanted to go reinvent myself because it's unusual for partners to leave at that level. And what I ended up finding was hours and hours of conversation. I thought we would meet for one or two hours. Six, seven, eight hours later, we were still in these rooms having conversations about what it was like to navigate spaces where we were you know, now I use the words first fews and onlys. And so that's really where it came from. And that's really what my work has brought me to. And so information and the book are based on those dinners and trying to create safe, brave and new space for women of color to talk about what's happening to us in workplaces. 
Thank you for sharing that. And we will be diving in a little bit more. Uh, we've got a specific question around the book a little bit more a little later on. But I wanted to also ask you, so my background is within careers bias. And I'm kind of helping some of those women who are going through the problems that we've already mentioned very briefly, uh, Deepa. But I also encounter women who feel invisible at work. Mm. What advice would you give to these women who feel this way? And how can we, you know, really start having conversations about this in a way that allows us to be who we truly are? Because we often hide, right, at work. Yeah. Absolutely. I think part of what we have to do is start talking about it, right? So in the book, I call it visible and invisible at the same time. It's almost like a double-edged sword. And I say that because we're visible because in a lot of spaces, again, we tend to be an only, right? So there is you know, some attention drawn to us just by virtue of what we are, but we're also invisible because we end up hiding so many parts of ourselves, right? And so the research and the conversations I've had have really suggest that women of color cover in ways that I don't think we even fully understand ourselves. That that's what's really surprising, right? Um, one of the women in the book I interviewed, her name is Sophia. She calls it erasing parts of herself, right? And she felt like she kept doing it in small and small ways and over time it mounts. So many of the women I interviewed thought that if they just compromised, right? Or if they just conformed, I call it conforming until they got to a senior level, once they got to the senior level, they would do it their own way. The challenge is these women actually told me later, once they got to the seat, there was more pressure to conform and behave in a certain way, right? Expectations than there had ever been. So mm -hmm. I think this idea that you can maybe edit parts of yourself or let parts of yourself go while you're rising is I think really flawed thinking that we're taught. It's also, I think, really tied to this idea that um, leadership has to look a certain way. Like most of us have not seen leaders that look like us, right? If, I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast or talking about the women who feel invisible. And when you don't see yourself in society, when you don't see yourself in media, when your teachers don't look like you, that is a real feeling where you unconsciously and consciously feel invisible. So I think we have to do very strong work to remind ourselves that we belong and really strong work to rewrite the narratives that actually don't work for us. That's really what this book is, or the book that I wrote is about, but also my work is about. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I think the next thing that I'm going to talk to you about a little bit and ask your opinion on, because I know you talk about microaggressions, it, it kind of ties into that invisibility piece, doesn't it? Oh. And one of the things I kind of wanted to really ask you deeper is how do you feel we should bring up microaggressions in the workplace? For example, I myself faced this in a former job role when someone thought I was a student because I kind of look young for my age anyway yes. and not a staff member. Yeah, familiar feeling, right? And I know clients of mine who are in senior positions can often be mistaken for being the junior or intern. Often it can feel uncomfortable and embarrassing saying something. What can someone do if they find themselves facing this every day? Yeah, I was one of those people. So I have always looked younger than my age. You know, now that I'm older, I, I you know, regret that I, I spent so much angst of my youth, like worrying about that. But yes, I used to, I used to get that comment every day, even as a senior partner, I remember being asked if I was there to get coffee or to take notes, right? It happened literally on a regular basis because I was always at a different client. So it's always a di different group of people, right? So that is, I think, a very common thing for a lot of uh, Asian women in particular. I, you know, some people call it the curse of, of um, being Asian, right? The, the curse of youth um, and that we just tend to look younger than our age. And so I think it's a real thing. When I was less tenured in my career, it would be something I constantly, felt like I had to correct, right? Like I was constantly feeling very edgy about it. Like it would always make me angry. 
I tell a story in the book where at one point I uh, was, you know, pretty senior in my career. I was a relatively new partner, but still a partner, right, at a big firm. And I was in Latin America. I did a lot of work internationally. So Latin America and one of the uh, client executives walked into the room. And it's very common to constantly have coffee carted into the room, like in South America and the countries I was working in. And so uh, he looked at me and he said, oh, are, you know, can you get coffee? You know, and I kind of looked at him the first time. He asked me maybe three or four more times over the course of the 15 minutes we were waiting for everyone to show up. And the coffee cart happened to be closest to me, right? So at one after the fourth time, I just kind of leaned back and I got the coffee, asked him what he wanted, and I gave him the coffee. Um, and I did that a little bit because I was just didn't feel like having the conversation. I'd just taken a red eye. I was tired. And I also just kind of felt like I'm going to try something different. And, you know, the meeting started and I walk up to the meeting and I introduce, I'm literally the most senior person in the room there to organize everything and run this million dollar, you know, actually, I think it was almost a billion dollar deal. And you could just see the blood drain from his face, right? And so I share that story to say, and I got everything I wanted out of that negotiation because he was mortified and embarrassed. I share that to say, I don't think there's an exact proper way of dealing with it. I think you have to do what feels comfortable to you. I used to always, you know, really puff up my feathers and, and make a stink when that happened early on. And then at some point I realized that's really about them and it's not about me. And I'm not going to do, uh, you know, strange things to look older. I did get at that advice. Maybe you could wear glasses, even if you don't need them or, you know, pull your hair up in a bun or wear not, you don't, don't wear such stylish clothes. That was something I used to get a lot. Like you dress very young and hip. Like, can you maybe dress more conservative? That might help with your age challenges, but that was not something I wanted to do. Right. And so I think you just have to decide uh, which battles you're going to choose to pit, you know, fight and really find other ways to have your work and your credentials speak for you. Yeah. And I think it's really important what you said about changing who you are. I was often told in the workplace that I was over smart. But for me, I used to, because I used to work in schools and colleges and universities, I used to feel more comfortable being in smart attire, shirts and dresses and things like that. And we shouldn't really change who we are either as women. And it's bad enough when we're a brown woman, we have to, we feel like we always have to really, really have little pieces of us and change who we are in a way, right? Absolutely. I did a call yesterday where I was on a panel with um, uh, four women I interviewed in the book. And one of the women is a Japanese woman by descent. And she um, you know, had a very senior role at a large company. And she now sits on three boards. I believe two of them are public. So a very, very, right, um, you know, one of the top, top women in the country. And she said because of her background and how she looks, she's, she's uh, shorter than five foot. And so as a result of that, she always feels like people don't take her seriously and she doesn't take up enough space. And she actually over prepares even, you know, I would, I'm guessing her age, I'm guessing she's in her sixties, but you know, that, that as a result of that, she over prepares even for board meetings, even at that age. So I, I think it just carries with you, right? I think you're always going to have certain things that, you know, are your soft points, right? And you have to just decide how much work you want to do and how much you let go. And if it really bothers you, then I think you can also enlist other people's support in making sure you get, you know, people people stand up for you. So in a lot of those meetings, what ended up happening, because I was the senior partner, a lot of my staff would say things like, yes, yeah, she's the partner. <laughs> what you just said is probably not going to work for you. And other people started correcting those things. Yeah. And I think it comes with that learning curve, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. One of the next things that I wanted to ask you, Deepa, is, and, and this kind of links back to what I said at, right at the beginning, actually, linking to bullying, because I help a lot of clients who are being bullied, and I see this pattern, 
especially in the UK. But why do you think when a woman of colour is facing discrimination or bullying, they are less likely to be believed or even ignored compared to their white counterparts? I think it's partly that we have not really fully gotten our arms around the fact that race shows up at work, right? At least in the United States context, it's a relatively new conversation. It's only come come up after George Floyd's murder. I think up till then, you know, and this is one of the main points of my work now, I think we've had this erroneous belief that especially corporate spaces, but probably all workspaces are meritocracy, that if you work hard, they will be okay. So when you complain about certain things, there's just been less opportunity or less acceptance of that. I think a few years ago, you know, we cracked through some of that for women with Me Too. And I think we're going to be in the same place for conversations around race. I think people want to believe it doesn't happen. And I think that's part of the disconnect. I also think processes are set up to protect companies and to protect, you know, HR processes are set up to protect the, co- the company from legal <laughs> legal pursuit, right? Or from, from challenge. And so a lot of our processes and the people sitting in the seats don't also understand racism. So I think it's a little bit of a people just don't have empathy for it or understand how much it affects us as well. And so that's also not our fault or not our problem, but the system doesn't work when we do speak up. That's a real thing. Yeah, no, definitely. And whilst you were saying that, I was just thinking about the fact that when I even brought up bullying or discrimination, you know, you're often told as a woman, I've spoken about it on a solo episode before, oh, you're overreacting or are you sure that they didn't mean to say it like that? I mean, I'm I'm sure, Deepa, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, you're being too melodramatic, those kind of, you know, words. It's kind of pinned on us a little bit. It is. Absolutely it is. I mean, I tell tell stories in the book, again, um, where a whole chapter is dedicated to the fact that, you know, reporting processes don't work and I think that they're flawed. And what really struck me, and I'm only giving you this example because I think it really speaks to the fact that it's happening to senior women. I interviewed six senior women of, you know, of the uh, of the 500 who had the exact same story. And so they were senior. When I say senior, I mean C-suite level. They all um, had kind of risen in their companies or come to their companies and been there for a few years, were very respected. Something egregious, racist happened around them or to them. They felt comfortable enough to report it to HR. And each of those six women got bite back. Basically, the company did not support them, thought they were being whiny or noisy. And in every single one of those situations, they settled, got some money out of it, but never worked at that company or even in some cases, the industry again. And it's pretty common. And so if it's happening to the senior most women, you can bet it's happening at all levels, right? So I, I just think it's it's un, it's an unfortunate phenomena that we need to talk about more. We need to have conversations more. I think we need to realize it's not us, right? I think a lot of us keep those things in because we think it's just us. And if we don't understand how widespread it is, we can't change it. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting you gave that example. Thank you for sharing because I think oftentimes we do we do think it's us. We do think yes. it's in our head and almost we're gaslighted in certain situations to think that you know it's all in our it's all in our head absolutely and it's not. Hmm. that's why the work you're doing is very very important kind of wanted to ask you a question now about your your book the first the few the only and you know about helping women obviously reclaim their power in the workplace 
what do you hope the book will do for others who feel unseen and want more? And can you tell us a little bit more about like what really led you to write this book? Yeah. So um, I wanted it to be the book that I never had, right? Growing up and the things that I thought were my own. I think I used to carry, for example, a lot of, a lot of imposter syndrome. And I think things like imposter syndrome happen to black and brown women because we don't see ourselves represented, right? And as a result, we end up carrying a lot of things that are actually the system's messages to us and not necessarily our own. So my hope and my goal in writing the book was, and I say, I say it in like the first few pages, I hope that women of color don't feel so alone and don't take on all the things that are theirs. I think part of what I found as I interviewed all of these women was that two out of three women of color I interviewed are actually sick. And I don't mean sick, like cancer diagnosis, something that is clear. I mean, some, some sort of mysterious illness. So stomach pains, headaches, skin rashes, heart palpitations, you know, um, migraines, um, and there's a long list in the book and they are these things and almost every woman had them. And I think it's what happens when you are not seen and heard, when you're invisible, when you mute yourself, when you edit yourself, I think it shows up in your body in different ways. And I think for a lot of women of color, it's trauma and we just have never had space to talk about it. And so that's really why I wrote the book. I don't want more of us to suffer and I think we need to make it okay to talk about. So yes, that's, that's, that's the whole goal of it. It's very interesting because when i when i was going through my like hardships in the workplace i kept on getting ill every yes. kind of month every month and it was like physical symptoms also anxiety i suffer from mild anxiety anyway but the anxiety was very heightened and when i'm having clients come to me what you just said the stomach pains or maybe you know they're not able to hold their food down or just like very mysterious illnesses yes. as you said the doctors can't pinpoint so it's very um very very interesting Deepa thank you for sharing that in terms of yeah we are having a lot of conversations Deepa about what it's like to be a woman of color and you know not just in the U.S. but in the U.K. Um, especially in the workplace and these conversations are great they're a great starting point but what action can we kind of take to make sure that we are supported and actually being heard. The reason I'm asking this is talking about it is one thing, but the companies who continue to ignore us seem to still not understand what is what is this about. Yeah. So what can we really do to move the needle forward as individuals? I think there's a few things. So I think the first is, and I, in the book, I describe it as the power of me and the power of we. So the power of me is figuring out for yourself, like, what do you believe for yourself? What are your boundaries? What are the messages you've been told, right? And the things that you should aspire to that come from your family or society or outside forces that aren't actually working for you. For a lot of women of color that I met, it was, you should work harder. You should do more. You should be grateful. And that leads us to situations where we don't always speak up for ourselves. So that's kind of the first set of things we can do. The second part of what I say, so that's power of me, is power of we, that we need to find others, find community, especially with other women of color, if we're going to make change and feel like we can get through this. Again, that alienation feeling I think happens because so many of us are in these spaces and we don't talk about what has just happened. Microaggression has just happened. Someone has just bullied us. We don't have spaces where we can talk about it. And so it's really important that you find that power of we. 
But I think the third part of this, and I have a whole chapter where I talk about stay or go, is that I think it's okay to walk away from workplaces that don't support us, that don't see us. And I don't think we've ever had that conversation before. Not all workplaces are created equal. Some just don't get it. Some want to, some don't want to. And I think we need to be able to tell the difference. I think there are things we can do to try and make the system better. And it takes working together to do that. And it also takes our allies, who I call co-conspirators, right? So it takes all of us to make change. That's almost the power of us. So I've kind of added that it's not in the book. So it's power of me, power of we, and maybe the power of us to actually make change. And it's going to take all of us talking about these things and pushing on the systems because the systems aren't going to change by themselves. Yeah. Do you think, because I know, or I think I did watch one of your TED Talks, you briefly spoke about the Great Resignation. Do you think with the Great Resignation, women of color are having more power to leave those toxic work environments. Yes, hands down, yes. So we did some research about a year ago that suggested two out of three women of color were thinking of leaving their roles in the next six months. The data here in the U.S. at least suggests that um, a lot of women, moms in particular, are leaving the workforce, but women of color, especially in black women, and they're actually going and creating their own companies to create cultures that work for them. So the data does already show that. So yes, I do think there's more permission. I think there's more opportunity. I think more companies are looking for us in a very different way. So part of it is that as companies focus more on DEI, they're looking to people like us to answer those questions because they don't know how to do it. So we're more in demand in that respect. And then secondly, I also think there's just more jobs available because companies are desperate to, to hire people. And so, yes, we are in the power seats. I actually say something in some of my talks where I, I say, I think women of color are the new power brokers. I just don't think we still sometimes know that we have the power, but it's, it is shifting in our favor. Yeah. And I think the other pattern that I've seen just personally through when I'm working with my clients is that a lot of them are leaving their jobs and just having a break deeper because of that trauma or something that's happened to them where they've not they've not they've been working so hard that they just feel like I just need a break you know because I've worked so hard absolutely I mean that's pretty common too one of the women in the book that I interviewed calls it the radical sabbatical she said not everybody can do but if you can just take space I mean for me I ended up spending eight months in bed um, because I was that sick. And I think that that, and that, so I hadn't quit yet. I had just kind of take a leave of absence and I was privileged enough to be able to do that. Not all companies allow you to do that. But I think the space was really important for me because part of my struggle was I had sacrificed so much to get to the seat, right? It was such a part of my identity. Like I had given up so much to be this powerful title and to have this big job. And I didn't know who I would be without it. So for me, that space was really important to figure out if I'm not this big job, like what is my life going to look like? But I think for a lot of women, it's healing time. It's healing space. It's just energy. Like once you, I call it, once you unplug from the system, there's a whole deprogramming that has to happen that does take about six months, if not a year. So absolutely. Yeah, no, very interesting. And I think that the pandemic has almost, post-pandemic has almost helped us to really, really have more of these conversations Lastly, the last thing that I want to ask you, Deepa, is whilst you've been on this, you know, incredible journey advocating for others, hearing all these stories, what have you learned about yourself and the women who need to be seen? And what kind of drives you to do this, even on the tough days? 
Yeah, I think my biggest learning is that for me, and I, I, it's a perfect, you know, hop off from the last question. I think I used to see success as very different from health and success used to be advancement and big titles and, you know, more promotion and more money, like all the things that you are, are given in uh, a corporate setting, right? I was rewarded for my productivity. And that's, I think, a real challenge. I think I realized now that productivity isn't everything, right? Per- performing isn't really the way I want to be living and that success has to come with health and wellness. And I think women of color maybe know this in our guts, but we've put it aside as we, you know, navigate these spaces to your point where we're not seen and heard. And so I think that's a really new learning for me that success and health are tied together. They're not separate things. And I truly try to live my life that way and pay attention, you know, when my body can't take anymore. And that's very new. I think the second part of why I do this work is because I don't want anyone else to go through the feelings that I did when I was really struggling with knowing I wanted to leave, knowing it was probably best for me to leave health-wise, and yet feeling like I had to just sit in the seat, right? That I had to stay there. And so part of my what drives me is just having women, you know, share that they don't feel alone when they hear a TED talk that I've done or they, you know, see the book or they hear a conversation or a podcast. Um, I just think most of us have not been. Uh, taught to talk about these things. We're just beginning to. So if I can help foster those conversations and hold containers and hold space to really start those conversations, almost be the the match that lights the conversations, that's really what I feel like my work is and what energizes me. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people connect with you and find you? And can you tell us a little bit about, I know the book has been released in America, but has it been released in the UK yet as well? It is now available. I I think that just happened in the last week or two. So if it's not available there right now, it will be. Um, But yes, it it will be uh, available in multiple countries. And the best place to reach me is uh, on my website. So Deepa Peru, D-E-E-P-A-P-U-R-U.com. But I'm actually most active on LinkedIn. So that's another place where I do a lot of posting and sharing and, and talking about these topics. Okay, I'll make sure I'll put all your social media handles and everything in the show notes. But thank you so, so much for coming on today, Deepa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And and thank you for the work you do. We, We need to have more people having these conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Career Happiness Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media or with somebody you know, it will make a significant difference to. And remember, if you haven't already, please take some time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much.